So welcome everybody into the Reading Corner again. And today my guest is Greg Jenner, public historian with a focus on pop culture and humour. Uh, you probably know Greg from his uh, podcast, You're Dead to Me, and he's also the author of Ask a Historian and Dead Famous. But actually the main purpose for us talking today is Greg's book, uh, which is just out from Walker Books and is called You Are History. So welcome, Greg. Hello. Thank you for having me. I think we've got a lot to talk about. And the first thing <laughs> is really, what is a public historian? <laughs> oh, I get this a lot. Um, it's actually very hard to boil it down. There's not really a sort of one line explanation, which is a shame, really. I think public historian is a useful title for what I do, because it's about bearing in mind who you're speaking with. And I use a with rather than two, because I think the communication of information from experts to the public often has a sort of one way direction to it, which can be sometimes a bit off-putting. You have university historians, academic historians, and you have popular historians who write books, and, and that's what I do too. But I'm always trying to make history accessible and enjoyable to everyone, regardless of how old they are, regardless of what education level they've reached, regardless of their interests, because history is very daunting and scary for many people. And for children, it's this vast unknown for people in middle age, sometimes it's the thing they hated at school when they were young, and then they kind of go, oh, I'm, I feel I've missed out. So for me, public historian is philosophy of ensuring that whatever I do, someone listening or someone engaging with it is not going to feel patronised, disrespected, bored, or wondering, what's this for? <laughs> well, that's really interesting because I know with scientists at the moment, there are a lot of uh, really young and very engaging scientists from all you know spectrums of the sciences who are writing for young people and working in public engagement and they actually have master's degrees in public engagement is that true for history as well it is now yeah so i have been using this title for about 10 years and since then it's actually become a, a master's course you can do at several universities in fact i teach on two of those courses at york and royal holloway so it's become uh, a very sort of comfortable field within what historians do. But 10 years ago, if I said public historian, people would stare at me and go, as opposed to a private historian, what's what's the difference? Oh, that's really interesting because I've always been of the opinion that even if you're an academic historian or scientist or a researcher, you really should be able to communicate your ideas to anybody. But anyway, we're here to talk about your book and, and that sort of fits really well with the title, You Are History. Um, tell us about it in a nutshell. It is a, a funny, cheerful, mostly, a global history of daily life through 50 uh, items and objects or things that a child will use pretty much every day. And it's structured through a sort of modern school day. So you start in the morning with the things you do in the morning and then you go off to school and it's the stuff you encounter at school and then you come back in the evening. So essentially, it's a history of the world and a history of daily life, but it's based around what will a child experience on an average day and the things they come into contact with, which they might not assume have an interesting history because ordinary stuff feels ordinary, but actually everything is extraordinary when you actually look at it. It's the kind of book you can hopefully dip into, but it's also meant to be a, a day in the life. I did want to comment on that, actually. Uh, as you say, you could dip into any of those objects that you find interesting. But what I really appreciated uh, about this book was the flow through it. I'm interested to know why you start with the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> 
well, let's be honest, our toilets are funny and there's a certain embarrassment around them. And that is innately funny, therefore, because they're, they're sort of slightly taboo and naughty. But also we have to be super honest. The toilet is a fundamental part of our life. Of course it is. Every human who has ever lived has needed to go to the loo. It's a biological necessity for all of us. And the history of toilets is really interesting because it gets you into the history of technology and sanitation and ideas of dirt and disease. It also gets you into ideas of private space, even gender and things like that. So the toilet is innately funny for kids. You know, whenever I do talks, I always lead with toilet stuff. That's what builds the, the energy in the room because people go, oh, this is a funny talk. Oh, good. But actually, as a historian, I would always make the case to say that the history of toilets is a brilliant way to look at the history of humanity because it's one of the first problems you have to solve when you build a civilization, you know, which is a slightly outdated word, but you know, if you build a city in the Bronze Age, where are you putting all the poo? And if you don't put it somewhere safe, you're going to get very ill and it's going to smell and you're going to get you know, rats and diseases and beetles and all sorts. If you look at them properly, you, you kind of realize that you know, this is essential to who we are uh, as a society, as individuals, and the history of them is very revealing. It brings us on to another thing, and that is your voice, which I also loved. And there seemed to be, for me, a really great balance between the humour that you've talked about, which is so engaging, but also there's a real seriousness to the history as well. And I think sometimes books that try to be funny about things don't necessarily also carry that weight and, and that real interest in historical inquiry. So I wanted to ask you about humour and whether anything goes when we're looking at history or whether there are some things that even with distance and time should not be laughed at? It's such an interesting question. And it's one we've addressed so many times. You know, I worked on Horrible Histories for 13 years and um, I now host a BBC podcast where, you know, I pair up a comedian and an academic historian. And so jokes are a huge part of my life. They have been for the entirety of my career almost. Um, but at the same time, you know, there are there are these sensitivities, there are these rules, there are these sort of unwritten sort of lines in the sand almost where you suddenly feel like you're crossing something and you go, oh, this doesn't feel appropriate. And it sometimes is a question simply of what feels right. Um, you ask, you know, is there anything that you cannot joke about? Well, you know, in Horrible Histories, we never managed to joke about the Holocaust. And that in some ways is not unexpected, of course not. But in other ways, the power of horrible histories is that the humor allowed you to talk about quite horrible, nasty stuff, but also let you talk about important things. And the fact that we could never do the Holocaust for children was quite a disappointment to me because it's so important that children know about it because we're seeing increased Holocaust denial. But it never felt totally right. And you don't want to crowbar something in that's inappropriate. And it's the same in a book. If you're going to do a gear shift into a sudden sort of page of seriousness, which I do quite often in my mm. books of grown-ups, and I've tried to do here too. You have to be upfront and honest. And so I, I like to put myself into the text. I like to say, I don't feel comfortable. And I'll use the first person. And I'll say, I don't like talking about this with jokes. I don't like being funny here. If you'll excuse me, I'm going to now be serious. Because I feel like, A, as the author of the book, you have a responsibility to guide your reader through and to set the right tone. B, I think it's really important sometimes to say, I I don't want to joke about this, even though this is a funny book. You know, I, I lost family in the Holocaust, people I didn't really know, but, you know, that had an impact on my family. And I am sort of aware of how horrible it is. And, and same, you know, the history of enslavement, the legacy of slavery is still with us. So these histories of horrific violence that were done in the past, well, they're not gone. So you can't joke about them if they're still hurting people today. It's an important thing, I think, as an author to understand 
the privilege of your position, you know, middle class white guy. So I, you know, you, you can't go around making fun of other people's cultures if they're if they're hurting. So you have to be really careful. Uh, when I wrote this book, I showed it to thirteen historian friends of mine who all have got different expertises and of different sort of um, heritages. And, and I asked them, you know, are there anything in is there anything in here that you would change? And you know, they did. They came back with really helpful advice on language and phrasing, just to make sure the book was accessible to all, wouldn't be upsetting to anyone, wouldn't accidentally perpetuate negative ideas or myth. So mm. for me, humor is a wonderful teaching device. I think I love being silly. I love the joy of comedy, how wonderful it is to laugh with, with fellow people. But I have to use humor carefully. And when I suddenly realize this is not a humor page, well, I'll, I'll tell people up front, we're not doing humor here. It's sad. Let's just be in this moment together, talk about this horrible history that happened, and then take a breath and then move on and then return to the humor when it's appropriate. I think for, for me, it's about giving people little signposts of what's coming up ahead and, and letting them feel what they need to feel. What a fantastic answer. And how serious we've got about humor. You know, I think it needs considering. I heard on Radio 4 recently a program about stand-up comedy in Ukraine. Yes, I heard that Which too. was absolutely yeah. fascinating, but it's people living that experience. So perhaps we should tell people a little bit more about what they can expect. Tell us about one of the objects in here, other than the toilet that you found <laughs> particularly fascinating to write about. Well, that's, a, that's such a difficult question, isn't it? Because there are 50 things in here and you're mm. never quite sure what other people will find interesting. And sometimes I'm surprised by it. Sometimes I'll say something and people go, oh, wow. And you go, oh, oh, I didn't realise that was you know exciting to you. So the, the joy of writing about 50 things is that hopefully whoever reads it find something that they're into or, or surprise them. But I really like the history of time. So I love the history of the alarm clock, what it is that regulates our world. You know, the way we tell the time is so, we assume it's science-y. You know, you were talking about scientists before. We assume it's like a law, it's like the physical law of the cosmos. But timekeeping is a human invention. And so the history of time is really, really fun. And so the history of the alarm clock is really fun. The oldest alarm clock we think we, we have evidence for is from ancient Greece. There was a philosopher called Plato, a very famous philosopher. He was taught by Socrates and he, Plato himself, then taught Aristotle, so the three great philosophers in a row. But he invented an alarm clock, we think, to wake up his lazy students because he ran a school and his students were always sort of typically late. And we don't know how it worked, but it was, it was probably a klepsidra, which is an ancient Greek word meaning water thief. It measured the flow of water from one vessel into another. And I love that because it's really interesting because you could change the flow, the speed of the flow of the water, depending on the time of year. And you might be thinking, well, why do you need to do that? Time is, time is standard. But time wasn't standard. In the ancient world, indeed, until medieval times, until 1371, when Ibn al-Shatir, who's an Islamic scholar in, in Syria, invented a brand new sundial, an hour was a different length, uh, depending on the month. So it would be 75 minutes or 45 minutes, depending on if you're in the summer or the winter, because there's more daylight. So if you, if you are agreeing to divide your day up into 12 uh, hours of daylight and 12 hours of darkness, which is what the Romans did, then you have to agree that those hours need to shrink and stretch to match what's happening with the solar uh, patterns. So we have this notion that time is standardized and it makes sense to us. And it did make sense, but it also had to change to fit with the rhythms of the, the physical world, but also what people wanted. And we have these lovely stories of ancient uh, ancient Roman playwright. One of these characters complains that the invention of a sundial 
uh, has ruined his lunch because now he can't have lunch when he wants. He has to wait till lunchtime. So, you know, he, we get these sort of lovely stories of ancient people complaining about the invention of, of timekeeping that now sort of regiments their life when before they could just do what they wanted. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of fascinating. I love that stuff, the, the sort of the everyday, the ordinary. I've got a three-year-old daughter who is fascinated by clocks and I've got a wristwatch, which I just, just got for my birthday. And she loves it. She comes in every morning. She came in this morning and she said, Daddy, can I see your wristwatch? And she came in and she sort of put it on her wrist. And I said, what time is it? She said, it's 10 o'clock. And I said, well, I think it might be seven o'clock. She went, okay, it's seven o'clock. And I could see that she doesn't understand what that means, but she was excited. Yeah. So I'm talking to you on the 31st of October, 2022. It's the day after the clocks went back for um, the end of British summertime as we enter Greenwich Mean Time. And my computer went back two hours, not one. How can it do that? Did anybody else, I wonder, have a computer that went wrong yesterday? It seems to have corrected itself today, but it was very, very confusing. Yeah, that's that's not helpful at all, is it? So anyway, it it the object that I was hoping that you would talk about seems to me to connect to time quite well because the whole idea of the clock changes the way that we conceptualize the world that we live in and I was fascinated by the globe because to me that's another big one that actually you don't see the world again in the same way Mm. once you have a globe tell us a bit more about that well that's right so the globe is you know as I said the book is structured around a, a a school day for an ordinary child, uh, assuming they go to to school. Not all children do, of course. Um, But um, one of the things that you might see in a classroom might be a globe. Uh, You know, I certainly remember in my classroom as as a kid, we had a map on the wall, an atlas. And what I thought was really interesting for children to know is that these have a very interesting history, but they are hugely controversial. They are still to this day hotly debated. Globes are accurate. Maps are not. Maps are a representation of a best case sort of estimate of what land masses look like. But because they're on a flat plane, uh, they're wrong and they go back uh, quite a long way. So the the map that we know, the famous one is called the Mercator map. It's really good if you're a 16th century sailor, but it gets stuff wrong. It makes Africa much too small. It makes uh, Greenland much too big. You know, and there's this big campaign to try and change the maps, which is so strange because in our head, you're like, what do you mean change the maps? We're very, very comfortable with that. But the idea of globes is really ancient. We know the ancient Greeks thought about them. We know, you know, there's a guy called Anaximander. who made one of the first of the world maps. And you've got Ptolemy and Strabo, who are very important ancient scholars who were a bit wrong in their <laughs> sort of estimations, but were very, very influential. So they became very important. But maps are cultural. There's a very famous map made by two Arab uh, astronomers and explorers, called Al-Biruni and Al-Idrisi. And their map is called the Tabula Rogeriana, um, which means the the map of King Roger. And it's upside down by our standards. It's inverted upside down. And now there's no reason that a map needs to be the way up it is. But we just look at it and go, that's wrong. That's the wrong way up. North should be north and south should be south. But for them, they're like, it doesn't matter. We're we're doing it this way. Mm. And so this, this extremely... Uh, important map made in the Islamic world, made in medieval times, which was used by cartographers. It's an incredibly beautiful document. It it looks to us just completely unusable and bewildering when you stare at it because you're like, where where are all the where, where is everything? And then you realise it's upside down. So as with time, you know, which can be forty five minutes or seventy five minutes or, or sixty two minutes, depending on the month in the ancient world, maps can be anything you want them to be. They are a representation of an understanding of the world and our understandings will change. 
you know, physicists can tell us about the laws of the cosmos, but when it comes to actually representing what we know and what, how, we, how our world exists, humans will always come up with different answers. And I find that so exciting as a historian that there isn't necessarily one sort of shared history. And that's why this is a global history. That's why this book is designed, hopefully, to, to share with children the, the really thrilling and exciting and surprising fact that many of the things we take for granted now whether it's the history of spoons or the history of underpants or the history of tin cans, they started somewhere as one thing and then they've sort of evolved and changed and tinkered and people have come up with their own versions. Chinese invented the toothbrush and toilet paper a thousand years before they were invented in, in Europe and in North America. So the Chinese got there first, but it didn't spread from China. It was invented twice independently. Two different sets of people came up with the same idea on different parts of the planet. And that happens quite often, it happens with money. You know, the history of money is really interesting. You know, there's an island called Yap, I think it is, and their money are giant rocks, huge, huge boulders that cannot, they can't be moved. So the idea of money is not the same across the world, even though we all sort of agree that money must be a thing that we all use. So yeah, I, I love that mm-hmm. around the world, different societies have asked the same questions, but they've come up with different answers. Mm. I think that what objects have been given value um, over time as well, you know, salt, tulip bulbs, gold. Yeah. I mean, yeah, tulip mania is slightly mythologized, actually. But yes, it is fascinating. Salt, hugely important because it preserves food, of course. So it was, it was massively important. Uh, gold, because it doesn't tarnish and it's soft enough to be worked. Funny enough, actually, um, the fork, for example, uh, the fork was not eat was not used to eat food at all for a long, long time in Europe. And in 1608, Thomas Coriat, an English writer, went off to Italy where he he saw a fork for the first time. Uh, and he ate with a fork. He came back to England with a fork and said to all his friends, oh, this, I'm going to eat with a fork now. And they all mocked him. They're all like, you're a fork dork. You're, you're kind of <laughs> some, some foreign nerd, you know, because you, you look like a foreigner eating with a fork. You mentioned gold, but there's a princess called Theophano, medieval princess from the Byzantine Empire. And she married a German prince. And at the wedding uh, banquet, she pulled out a golden fork and everyone was outraged because they were like, what are you doing? Well, this is a sort of an insult to us. How dare you? Why aren't you using your hands? Not to get too sidetracked, but I once did a Radio 4 program about the history of cutlery, where we all ate some food with golden spoons and the food t- tasted different. And the reason it tasted different is normally you're tasting your spoon, but gold has, uh, it's very uh, chemically neutral. It doesn't react with your, your food very much. And you realize that when you eat with a golden spoon, you're not tasting anything except the food. But when you, go back, to eat with, yeah, when you go back to eat with steel or, you know, in the olden days, it would be more like tin or copper or, or bronze or iron, whatever, you'd be tasting your cutlery. And sometimes that gives it flavor. You know, a lot of uh, Indian cooking, you cook it in a, in a copper pot because it gives the curry really great flavors, but you are tasting the cutlery. So mm. when you eat with gold, you're not tasting it. And suddenly you notice you're not tasting it and you go, this yogurt tastes amazing. So it's, I mean, even something as small as the history of spoons gets you into really interesting conversations about technology and chemistry, taste and, and you know, um, etiquette and manners. It's fascinating stuff. I'm so excited. I want to go and taste something immediately. <laughs> <You> <laughs> so thinking a little bit about the layout of the spreads in your highly illustrated book and we should mention the yeah jenny yeah 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 brilliant um, jenny taylor yeah she did a fantastic job i mean that's such a difficult job to be handed a history book by 
a historian saying, right, this is a global history of 50 things. There's art on every single page. In fact, there's two fun cartoons on every page. So you've, you've got 300 cartoons to draw and they have to be historically accurate and they've got to be global. So you're doing Korean history, you're doing African history, you're doing Egyptian history, you're doing the Vikings and the Aztecs. Poor Jenny had such a difficult job because I was She's like, amazing. and now do this. Yeah, yeah. Really funny too. There's also something on uh, the pages called Greg's Greatest. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this was my editor's idea, actually. The idea of on every every page of, of these 50 objects for me to sort of celebrate something that I particularly love. But I guess because, as you can tell, I get very enthusiastic about stuff. And in the meeting where we were talking about what could go in the book, I would get excited about certain random things that weren't particularly useful. <laughs> you know, they might be a really silly type of shower. Like a, um, there's a thing called a velo douche. And the Velo Douche was a pedal-powered shower in, in Victorian times, and it didn't really take off. It wasn't particularly popular, but I love them. I think they're hilarious because the more you pedaled, the cleaner you got, but the more you pedaled, the sweaty you get. And I think my editor was like, well, <laughs> if you want to include these sort of wackier bits of history, then let's create a little section where I get to have my little favorite bits. And so we created the Greg's Greatest in order to have the, the wacky fun stuff. So it's just a little box in the corner where I can sort of speak personally and say, here's a thing that I'm really interested in, either because it's funny or because you might be surprised to hear this. You know, white chocolate was invented as a medicine for children. Is it I, true um, that Coca-Cola was a medicine as well? Well, it was. It had, it had cocaine in it and it was sold in pharmacies. So it wasn't so much a medicine in how we think of things now, but it was, it was sort of meant to be a kind of health drink. And the, the odd thing is it was a syrup. So you would go into the chemist and you'd buy the syrup and you would add the carbonated water yourself. So mm. really what you were buying was a sort of gloopy sort of paste mm. almost. And then so you had string stuff. Yeah, exactly yeah. that. And um and initially it was a it was a huge flop. It didn't do well at all. And then it was um bought out by a businessman who was much more savvy. And the marketing became all about the secret ingredient. And then people were like, Oh, what's the secret ingredient? It's like, I can't tell you it's a secret. And mm. so um it became this enormous global smash but a lot of stuff you know sugar used to be a medicine uh, alcoholic spirits used to be considered the fifth element distilled in the, in the arab world back in medieval times and so it, people used to think that whiskey would preserve your life some things that you now think of as, as the opposite of medicine sugar booze uh, coca-cola uh, yeah were once thought to be healthy it's a brilliant book i know uh, children teachers adults we're all going to enjoy reading it but I just want to talk a little bit, a bit about being a historian and how important reading is to you in that role. Well, reading is an extraordinary joy. And I think of it as one of the sort of enormously significant parts of my life. And, you know, with a three-year-old daughter, I'm trying to get her to fall in love with books too. And, you know, we, we read together as often as we can. To be a historian obviously is to read. That's so much of what I do. Behind me in my office, there's a thousand books. You know, I read about 250 books a year. I, I guess one of the, the lovely things about being a historian is that given the, the sort of busyness of my career, so much of what I read now is pure history. You know, I'll be honest, I don't have time, sadly, for novels. I don't really have time for leisure reading. The, the leisure reading I do primarily would be um, sort of funny books, uh, memoirs that I listen to on audiobook. But in terms of my reading, I, I read history, factual, factual stuff. But a lot of my reading when I was young was creative writing, was fiction, was novels, was funny writing, humor writing. And that had a huge influence on my writing style and a, a huge influence on my abilities to communicate. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so, so important that 
when you're growing up, you read widely. Growing up, I loved reading the classics, you know, your, your famous Russians and your famous French and your famous English and your Shakespeare's. But I also loved you know, funny people, you know, people who were silly and had a way with words, Spike Milligan. And it's, it's that ability to, cr- to craft something beautiful. And I think it's a wonderful joy as, as growing up as a child to, to hear words, to read words. You know, if, if you have issues um, reading, if you have dyslexia perhaps, or, uh, or processing slightly different speeds to, to other children in the class, I think it's really wonderful to have audiobooks now because that's, that's a, a new way in some ways of enjoying the same thing, enjoying the same language and, and creation and craft, and, but it doesn't necessarily have to um, be reliant upon the ability to read at the same speed as your peers, for example. And, and so I love doing audiobooks because I, I know that there's an audience out there who, who really love them because they offer that world in a way that's more accessible. I often, when people say to me, what, you know, how do you become a historian? What, what tips would you give to a young person? I always say, learn languages and read as widely as you can, not just history because it will make you a better communicator. You know, the reason I love talking about history is because of the history books, but actually the, the tools that I've acquired to be a humor writer, to write jokes on the radio and to write on horrible histories and so on. Well, I didn't get those from historians. Fascinating. I got those from comedy people. I got this from yeah. Eddie Izzard and from Peter Cook and Dudley Moore and from, you know, Dawn French. And it's important to study yeah. lots of different things and then you'll find your voice. And be a rounded person. Do take us, though, a little bit into your history reading. Uh, what are you reading at the moment? At the moment, I'm juggling probably about 12 different books, which is standard for me. Uh, they're all on my shelf. I'm very lucky to belong to a community of, of like-minded historians, and we we love to read each other's books and see what we've all been working on. So you know, we'll send each other copies of our books and say, this is my new one. Here's my new one. What do you think? At the moment, I'm reading... I'm reading a brilliant... Well, I'm, I'm listening to an, a fantastic audiobook about JFK, which is a sort of heavy-hitting biography. It's an enormous heavy-hitting biography. <laughs> But what I am reading at the moment, I mean, I, I love Susie Dent's books. Uh, I know Susie a little bit and she's brilliant and she's so wonderful in language and words. There's uh, Adam Rutherford, who's a scientist who writes fantastic books about popular science. He's got a new one uh, about eugenics and, and the history of eugenics and um, how eugenics is still part of our society. People keep sort of the, the new eugenicist movement still sort of keeps bubbling up. So he's a really good science writer who has a sense of humor, but also tackles quite hard subjects. He previously wrote one about the history of racism as well. There's uh, a great book on the siege of, of Bays, Old Basing House in the Civil War, which has just come out recently, which is really good. So you're not just reading for your work, you're reading for the pleasure of reading those yeah, books. Yeah, absolutely. It is my work. I mean, that's the other thing, I suppose. It, Doing my podcast, um, where we do 16 different episodes every series, and they are completely different from each other, you know, all over the world, Stone Age up to the modern day, around the world, you know, Asian history, Chinese history, uh, you know, Russian history, uh, African history, uh, you know, the Americas, South America, Europe. You just have to be always reading about different things. And that's the, the enormous pleasure of being a historian to be plugged into this. In terms of what I've read this past week, I've, I've just started a new book called uh, Courting India, I think it is, by Nandini Das. That's a history of, to a certain extent, sort of romantic, but not just romantic relationships um, in South Asia in the, kind of the, the 18th, 19th centuries. And uh, I've read a really good book recently on William Blake by um, 
is John Higgs, who's a fantastic mm-hmm. writer. who's not really a historian, but he sort of writes mm-hmm. these really sort of eye-openingly kind of weird, fantastic cultural journeys. Can but, I just ask you a follow-up question? Yeah. Because you keep talking about a really good book. So as a historian, what makes it a good book? And do right. you take it at face value? Do you accept what you're reading? Or do you always read with a certain amount of scepticism? Yeah, well, that's a great question. The The judgment of a good book obviously can be multiple things. So you can you can judge on aesthetics. You know, uh, is it beautifully written? You know, is the language elegant and eloquent? And are you captivated by the style? Then as a historian, you're often looking at the ideas and the quality of the research. Is this original research? Is this the repackaging of you know pre-existing ideas, but just for a popular audience? Is it controversial? Is it deliberately choosing an argument that is actually a bit you know out there on the fringe, and you're kind of going, oh blimey, they're going for it? You know, where does this sit in relation to other books on the subject? Uh, who's it written for? You know, is it written in a sort of kind of difficult jargon and academic language that's you know for other historians or is it written for the general public you know a good book for me is one that uh, almost anyone can read uh, assuming they are you know they have a pretty decent functional functional literacy i like a book that you know you can pick up yes it might be daunting it might be heavy and chunky and you think oh no but actually if you give it the time it will reward you. That for me is a good book. But there are beautifully written books by, you know, Simon Sharma is an incredible prose stylist. And he's one of the reasons I became a historian because I remember reading his History of the French Revolution when I was very young. And I just remember being blown away by how beautiful his writing was. And it it startled me because I didn't think history books could be beautifully written. And my friend Yanina Ramirez writes these books about um, medieval women, primarily. You know, that she's, she's an art historian and a medievalist, but she's got a couple of books recently. She's got children's books and she's got adult books, but she writes with enormous passion. There are many brilliant historians who have their own style. And so, yeah, you're looking at the ideas, you're looking at the execution. Is it, is it well told? Is the research good? Is it deep research or quite superficial? But obviously, I don't know sometimes about the subjects, you know, because I don't know everything. So sometimes I'm reading a book for pleasure and just going, wow, this is great. I'm loving it. And then you'll see a critical review by a scholar who knows a lot about the subject going, well, actually, <laughs> and you go, oh, oh, OK, I didn't. Oh, I didn't realize. Look, I've, I've saved a really big question for the end. Well, it's okay. almost too big a question to ask you at the end, but oh, I'm no. going to ask it anyway. What's the point of history? <laughs> How long have I got? The truth is, as a, as a student, as a historian, you, you, you know, when you're young, you're sort of 18, 19, 20, you go to university and you study history. One of the things that you sort of get taught are these sort of oppositional theories. And one of those is sort of slightly postmodernist one of like, look, there is no truth. There is truth, but it's, it's unfindable. You can't, you can't find it. You'll never know the answer for real. And that's a sort of very disappointing thing to read. And then the other theory is the opposite. The other theory is, no, no, the past is knowable. It is knowable through hard work and diligence and and caution. And the the truth is you have to sort of steer between the two. But why study history? Well, because it's a very beautiful thing to try to get into the minds of others. It's an important part of belonging to a society, to be a member of a family, to be a a member of a, a community or a nation or to understand how others think and feel, what drives them and motivates them, what scares them. And to study your fellow human being, whether they're living or dead, is to develop empathetic skills 
of, of human connection. So I would always make the case that the study history doesn't have to be functional in that you learn key skills or whatever, you know, that, that's always a, an argument put forward. It's often, often said that a society needs to know its history in mm. order to set its future. And that's a good argument for sure. And you definitely don't want to repeat the mistakes of, you know, people made in the past. And we have to learn from, you know, political mistakes. When politicians tell us something and, you know, and as a historian, you go, hang on a minute, that's not true. Well, that's important to flag up. But I would always make the case that to study history, it's about going, huh, they were different to me. Why? Why did they? How did they end up there when I've ended up here? And rather than reje rejecting that and saying, well, they're weird and I'm right, for me, to study history is to go, oh, okay. There are so many ways to live a life. There are so many ways to experience uh, what it is to be human. There are so many ways to organize a society. I live like this. They live like that. Oh, okay. I'm going to go and find out what it was that drove them on. So I'm always. I'm always going to make the case that to study history, yes, it's functional. Yes, it's useful. It's very good for the CV. You know, it's uh, history graduates are often the most employable graduates because it's all the skills <laughs> you learn. But to be honest, the thing that I find the most exciting about it is it, it helps me understand people. Mm. And I love talking to people. I love meeting people. I love speaking with them. I'm enjoying speaking with you now. I I think it's really interesting to, to see what makes people tick and to study history is to study everything fantastic <laughs> so i really enjoyed talking to you as well and uh, learning more about you and your approach to history and just to remind everybody uh, your history is out now published by walker books greg jenner it's been such a delight ch chatting to you today thank you very much for having me on <laughs>